I told her she's a masterpiece. Get it? God's the artist. So are you. According to Ephesians 2.10, that's what you are called, poema, God's masterpiece. So then, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, very simply titled today message called The Love of Christ. The message itself won't be that simple, though. Kathy just told me that when the all the generous food and paper products that you provided was brought down to the Salvation Army in New Kensington. They were just on the verge that moment of calling out for a call for help because they were zeroed out, nothing left, zero. So it was very timely. Not only were you generous, but your gifts were timely. Kind of reminds me of in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem us. Let's turn, first of all, to Romans. I want to just reiterate some things. In fact, you can note these things because there is emerging from our study of Romans, I think, an advance on the doctrine of justification and bringing us to a far more intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's many years ago I prayed when I kind of got that inkling we do once in a while when God said to Solomon, ask what I will give you. And you think it over for a moment or what comes spontaneously from your heart is very interesting. Solomon didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for any of the things that we might normally think if we think of God as a genie in a bottle. Instead, he asked for wisdom in order to guide the great people called Israel. And God said, because you didn't ask for all these other things, I'm going to give them to you and wisdom. What came immediately from my heart was I asked for the ability to communicate the knowledge of, our, of your son. As Ephesians 4.13 says, the epinosis or extraordinary knowledge of the son of God. And that's what God has been allowing by his grace and favor. So richly undeserved, but merited by Christ. Our salvation and our justification was merited by Christ's meritorious obedience. What a wonderful reality that is. God, the one who justifies, as he's called in Romans 8.33, justified Jesus Christ himself, the one who died. So in Romans 1.17, the righteous one spoken of there, who will live because of faithfulness, is none other than Jesus Christ. Romans 3.26b, again, we're building up to our time here, our, our passage. It says, God is righteous, And the justifier of the one by means of faithfulness, namely Jesus. Read correctly, we have a Christological or a messianic reading of Romans 117. The one who lives out from his own faithfulness is Jesus Christ. In Romans 326, a careful reading is God is just and the justifier of him By his own faithfulness, Jesus. He justifies Jesus. And that's the final word in the astonishing pivot in Romans. Where the big pivot comes is Romans 3.21 to 26. I call it the astonishing pivot. After showing the universal homardiology or universal sinfulness of humankind, Paul moves into the universal salvation of all humankind, merited by Jesus Christ. Merited. By Christ's own obedience, which we find in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. We find that obedience unto death in Philippians 2, 8. We find that obedience leading to many or all being called righteous in Romans 5, 19. Through his obedience, we are justified. In Romans 6, 7, Jesus is identified as the one who died. And it says, for the one who died is justified away from sin or liberated from sin's 
claims. And then in Romans 8.33, he is specifically called Christ, the one who died. And so we have a doctrine emerging here, the doctrine of justification. God, the one who justifies, in Romans 8.33, has justified Christ, the one who died, in Romans 8.33 and Romans 6.7. And he justified Christ, the one who died, because of Jesus' own faithfulness. The righteousness of God is not some attribute of God, but it is his salvific intention, saving intention. As Martinus C. DeBoer, who I studied while I was away for six weeks in his commentary on Galatians, he calls it Christ's faithful death, a death executed in faithfulness and obedience. Christ died for the ungodly, says Romans 5, 6. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Just as he, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 3, 18, Peter agrees that the righteous one is Jesus. He says in 1 Peter 3, 18, he, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. That's the rest of humankind. So it's clear that God justified Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness that led all the way to and through his death on the cross. I'm saying all this because this is a doctrine of justification that has emerged from a partial darkness about that doctrine that hasn't really been cleared up since the Reformation, and it's being cleared up today. Not only here, but in other places, of course. So it's clear that God justified Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness. But here, we have to consider an epistle written before Romans, in which Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Since one died for all, then all died. Follow this logic. It's the logic of the cross, the mystery of the cross, the justice of the cross. You know nothing of the justice of God if you think of it in terms of a judge and a sentence and an execution or a prison sentence. We're not talking about that. That's not the justice of God. The justice of God is the justice of the cross, which is what we'll be studying, well, from here on in. So then, if one died for all, and he did, first class condition, then all died. Add to this Romans 3.20, and it's allusion to Psalm 143.2, where it says, no one living, no one living, no one living can be justified in God's sight. No one living. But Christ died. And was justified. And if all died. When Christ died. Let's say it this way. If all the human race died. When Christ died. Who was also justified. Then the all that died. With him who died. Were also justified. Now that's not bizarre. Because it's found in Romans 5.18 explicitly explicitly that all are justified. So it's safe ground we're on here. I'm not asking you to believe something far-fetched or bizarre. I'm asking you simply to believe the gospel. So if you add to 2 Corinthians 5.14 and Romans 6.7 and Romans 3.26, you add Romans 3.20, and it's allusion to Psalm 142.2 in the Septuagint, that no one living can be justified in God's sight, then you get the understanding that Jesus merited our so great salvation by his meritorious obedience, also called pistis Christu, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
His meritorious obedience, which merited the reward of eternal life, not just for himself, but for all. I hope you're getting that because it's the gospel. Seriously. Seriously? Seriously. You get the understanding that Jesus merited our so great salvation by his meritorious obedience leading to his faithful death which led inexorably and inevitably to his resurrection from the dead. For he had not only the command from the Father to lay his life down, but to take it back up again in John 10:18. It was one command, one event. And so, I say, since all died when the one died, then all must have been justified When the one who died was justified and freed or liberated from the power and the claims of sin. Romans 6, 7. Being liberated from the claims of sin, capital S-I-N. The one who died is also liberated from the wages of sin. Call it punishment or penalty if you want. Which is death. In Romans 6, 23. And that's one reason why Peter, in his very enthusiastic message on Pentecost, said death could not hold him down. Death could not hold him. Romans 6, 9 says the same thing. Liberation from the claims and the power of sin, Romans 6, 7, happened when Jesus died. And when he arose... From the dead, the power of death, capital D-E-A-T-H, was broken forever. It happened for Jesus, who had become sin, the one who knew no sin. He had become sin. And in him it happened for all of humanity in all of its times. This is the epinosis of the knowledge or the knowledge of the Son of God that I ask God to make me able to communicate. It happened for Jesus who had become sin. And in him it happened for all of humanity in all of its time. So as Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over, handed over, delivered up, paradidomi, for our offenses. And he was raised for our justification. Our offenses is the offenses of the whole world, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Our justification is the justification of all humanity, once in Adam, now in Christ. Romans 5, 18. Now, I'm setting some pace here for our next increment of doctrine, which I will be teaching on what I call the instauration. I haven't yet formalized that as a doctrine. When Jesus, who died for the ungodly, was raised from the dead justified, so were all the ungodly justified. Because God, who justifies, it's what he does, Romans 8.33, justifies the ungodly, Romans 4.5. This is the justice of the cross. This is the justice of the cross of the cross that must be distinguished from the punitive or retributive justice that we think about when we think of human courts of law, the judge, the sentence, the gallows. This is the justice of God. The justice of God is his saving intention realized in the cross and in the resurrection. And that, again, is distinguished from human justice and even from human notions of justice. And we get these objections all the time. Well, God is love. Yeah, but he's also just. But they assume that God is just like humans have the idea of justice. But he's just in that, yes, he is committed to the salvation of all humanity. You're right. He is just. And he's the justifier of the one who, by his own faithfulness, 
died. And in the justification of Jesus, there is the liberation from sin's claim and from the wages of sin, which is death for all of humankind. Now, this is going to be, I have to hit this from many different angles in many different ways with repetition. So if you don't get it all now, you will. And if you don't get it all in this life, you'll get it in the next one. Or you'll get it the moment you see him face to face. Which is when I think Paul got most of his doctrine. This is what we call the logic of the cross. But there's a better word for it. It's the wisdom of the cross. Otherwise known as the law of the cross or the theology of the cross. By the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, this is new territory. Evil was not only vanquished, conquered, but it was transformed into a supreme good. That's supposed to be shocking. That's why the Bible says we are more than conquerors, because we're in the one who more than conquered evil. He transformed it into the ultimate good into a supreme good. And we're going to be tackling this question. Why did God allow a world in which evil was permitted rather than one in which evil wasn't permitted? And in his wisdom, he considered it better to have a world in which evil was permitted. And there's many reasons for this, and they are beyond comprehension in displaying the love of God. And so, by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, evil was not only vanquished, it was transformed into a supreme good, which makes us in the agona at the present time, which is where we're going to leave you at the end of Romans, unfortunately, although in the inseparable love of Christ. In this agona, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we are in the one who conquered death, but more, more than conquering, transformed death into profit for us. So we're led by as sheep to the slaughter all day long. We're killed all day long, but there's no evil in that left because God transformed death into, like Paul said, for me, living is Christ and death (laughs) is a gain. Now, that'll just give you some ideas. This is what we call the mystery of the cross because there's the logic of the cross, which is the wisdom of the cross. So you ask the question, what came first, God's will or God's wisdom? You have to say God's wisdom. Other God, otherwise, God willed something apart from wisdom, and that's blasphemy. So we have the wisdom of the cross. And this opens up a whole lot of true theology. He's called the only wise God, which means only he is wise. And only he is good in the sense of essential good, agathos good. Only God is good in the essential way, as Mark 10, 18 says it. This is laying some tracks. You won't get it all today, but I'm deliberately doing this under the direction of the Holy Spirit, I believe, to show you that what you know yet is not what you ought to know yet, as you ought to know it yet. It's a challenge. And so we're talking about not only the wisdom of the cross, but it's the mystery of the cross by which evil is transformed. And I'm going to go a step further than that today. Not only transformed into good, but something even deeper. Now, I want to quote a famous Protestant. He's as Protestant as you get. Then I'm going to quote a famous Catholic who's not quite as Catholic as you get because the Catholics didn't quite buy his whole story. The first one is one I've quoted many times before, and I will again, is Jürgen Moltmann, of course. In his masterpiece called The Coming of God, a masterpiece of Christian eschatology. This is a sentence that he himself put in italics, not me. So when you see it in print, Jürgen did that, not me. He says, quote, the true Christian foundation for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of the cross and the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross 
can only be the restoration of all things. And that's true because redemption involves both an end or an objective and a means. The end is the restoration of all things or the heading up of all things in Christ. The means is the cross. Fluffy universalism skips over the means or doesn't deal so deeply with the means, which is the cross of Christ, but deals a lot with the universal effect. We have to do both if we're going to have a true Christian universalism. We have to emphasize equally the means of that redemption, which is Christ, death, Christ crucified, as well as the universal horizon or the end or the goal and objective of that, which is the restoration of all things. We also have to emphasize knowing that Christ died for all. We must never forget that he died for each. Paul speaks about love, walking in love, and how we cease to walk in love if we do something that deliberately offends our brother. And Paul says, for whom Christ died. He not only died for all, he died for each. So if you might think of some each person that you don't care too much about, Christ died for her. Christ died for him. Specifically. So don't ever forget when you think about Christ dying for all, that he died for each. Romans 14, 15, 1 Corinthians 8, 11. He died for me. He died for each. Galatians 2, 20, as well as all. Titus 2, 14. Add to this what is known as Thesis 17 in Bernard Lonergan's The Redemption, just translated, thankfully, in 2018. I've been waiting for seven years for that translation. Well, Jacob waited 14 years for Rachel. So I guess I could have waited seven years for a book. Add Thesis 17 and Bernard Lonigan's The Redemption, and you get a couple of lenses that afford you an insight into the word of the cross, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The logic of the cross, the theology of the cross, the word of the cross, the wisdom of the cross, the justice of the cross, the mystery of the cross. All tied to the love of Christ all tied to the love of God in Christ Jesus, from which we can never be severed. He says this. This is Thesis 17 in the Redemption. This one appears in bold. So when I print it, it won't be my bold. It'll be Lonergan's bold. It says, understanding the mystery, colon, the law of the cross. This is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, And was raised again because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. Don't be overcome by evil then, but overcome evil with the supreme good. Now, here's the thing, and this gives me some direction as a pastor slash student theologian. A synthesis of these two theses, one from Moltmann, one from Lonergan, would yield a fruitful garden of insights into just what the restoration of all things, apocatastasis pantone, means. It's an instauration. Get used to the word again. For now, I want to build a little something. We talk about standing on the shoulders of men and women, theologians that have gone before us. Let me build just a little bit on Moltmann's and Lonergan's theses and say that the cross is a creative act. Of God. That's that is that just blows me away saying it because it just dawned on me what I just meant by that. 
or what God means by that. But I'll just say for now, it's a creative act because by it, God brought non-created evil. There are three kinds of things when you deal with creation. There's uncreated reality. That's God. There is created reality. That's all of creation, including the human race. And then there is non-created. Non-created, which isn't reality and has no existence of its own, and that's called evil. Evil has no existence of its own. God didn't create it. God didn't will it. God did permit it. But here's the thing. In my view, the, at the cross is a creative act, and that includes the whole Christ event from the incarnation through the death, the burial, the resurrection. In fact, that's the way God creates the heavens and the earth in Christ Jesus. That's his end game, not just the beginning. The beginning, Genesis 1.1, is also the end. You'll see that unfold. This is the challenge to go beyond what you think you know, what I think I know. So I would say, building on these two theses together, that the cross is a creative act of God because by it, God brought non-created evil into existence as a created good. Even as a supreme created good. Before you think this is getting too bizarre, don't confuse bizarre with spectacular. Before you think this is getting too bizarre, death is an evil. Death has no sting. Death has no subsistence or existence in its own. Death is a non-created thing or non-thing. And God transformed death into a supreme good. So if you died right now, it would be the gain of going to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. So it's not bizarre. Neither is the salvation or transformation of angels, fallen angels, bizarre. Don't confuse bizarre with absolutely spectacular. Now, evil which has no positive reality. In fact, it has no being on its own. Can be classed as that which does not have being because it has not been created by God or even willed by him, only permitted. But God is the one who calls non-existent things into being. Romans 4.17. And that's one of the most important revelations we have about God. What God calls into existence is always good. Read Genesis 1.4. See what God said after he did certain things. Called it good. Genesis 1.10, called it good. 1.12, called it good. 1.18, called it good. 1.21, called it good. 25, he called it good. Then he got man and woman together and he surveyed the whole of creation. He called it very good. So the philosophers were correct when they equated good with being. Being, by its very definition, is good. Good is being. Being is is good. If it's brought into being by God, it's good. It's not divine good in the sense only God is good as to essential goodness. Only God is good as to essence, is how Aquinas said it, and other philosopher theologians. So for something to be, it has to be good. It's either God who is essential goodness or what God brought into being, which is a goodness by participation with him. It's called kalos good, K-A-L-O-S, kalos good. That's what he said all those times in Genesis, kalos. If God brings it into being, it's good. God himself is good. So being 
and good are one thing. God is essential good. What he brings into being by his creative act is good. Evil by its very lack of essence, lack of existence, lack of subsistence on its own is non-created. So God, by the cross, the mysterious justice of the cross, takes what is not a created entity, evil, and creates it into a supreme good. In fact, he incorporates it into the crucified Christ, which is the head and the body of Christ. Now, you say, I never thought of that. I didn't either, but I can prove it. Now, if something is being, it is good. If something is being, B-E-I-N-G, it is either God, who is agathos, essential good, or something God brought into being, which he called good. Kalos. Evil, though permitted by God, was not brought into being by God, therefore evil has no being, and it's not good. Evil is, by its definition, the privation of good. It has, no, I'm going to leave this topic and go to something clear. This is, this is how you exercise your senses, and then we go, so what I'm doing is making you bench press 350, and then you're going to say, I just barely, I couldn't even do that, and I said, well, let's do 120 for a while. Many reps, though. So, evil, though permitted by God, was not brought into being by God. Therefore, evil has no being. Being and good are one. Evil is the privation of good. And so it has no being on its own. It's the privation of being itself. It has no participation with good or with God, nor can it, nor will it ever. God did not eradicate evil. Rather, he transformed evil, a non-existent, non-reality, into a supreme good. In fact, into a supreme created good. Because supreme created good is that which has participation with God in Christ. When we say supreme good or a supreme good, we are talking about a good of participation with God in Christ. Jesus, therefore, or thereby, transformed the ungodly into the righteous. And so God did not call the ungodly into existence. but he calls the ungodly into existence in Christ, thus creating them in Christ Jesus, thus transforming the ungodly into the righteous. For you say, how can you even say that? Because he has made Christ to be righteousness for us in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and us to be the righteousness of God in him in 2 Corinthians 521. But you know what I've done so far with you? Tortured you. (laughs) This is rather deep theology mixed with some hefty philosophy. So let's return to some 120 pound light rate reps. God who justifies, Romans 833, justified Christ, the one who died, Romans 6 7. God justifies the ungodly. I'm saying what I said before, but now more succinctly. Romans 4, 5. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. While the ungodly were entirely impotent to remedy their condition under sin and their slavery under sin, in fact, they were dead in trespasses in Ephesians 2, 5. Since when Christ died, all died, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, then Christ not only died for the ungodly, but as the ungodly. 
So when God justified Christ, who died as the ungodly, he became sin, you know. God justified the ungodly, who are all the rest of humanity, with whom Jesus has solidarity because of his love. And all of humanity whom he represents. The reason we can't be separated from the love of Christ is because the love of Christ involves his own chosen eternal solidarity with you and with me. See, I'm building up to Romans 8.35 this way. When God justified Jesus, the one who lives by his own faithfulness and by the faithfulness of God, both. And that's the key verse, Romans 1.17. When God justified Jesus based on Jesus' faithfulness, Romans 3.26, then God justified all of humanity. No one living can be justified in God's sight, so we all died when he died. Dead people do no wrong. They do no right. But they are right because they died with Christ. And because the justification that happens to all of humanity is also called a justification of life in Romans 5.18, then all were made alive when Christ was raised. That's Operation Epsilon. That's seeing in the Christological Christ event of the cross everything done. Even though, to our eyes, we must see this all happen in visible manifestation when he comes again. So, after all, all will be made alive in Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. But that word, all will be made alive, is zo-o, zo, z-o-o, that's omega-o, followed by an Omicron O, and then the word poieo, which is a word for creation, or to be made. Zo-o poieo is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in the future tense. All will be made alive in the future tense. Why? Because Paul is anticipating the final quickening, as it's called, or vivification, or life-giving, which is the universal resurrection of the bodies of all of humanity in all of their times. He's looking forward to that. That hasn't happened yet. The life with which we will be made alive in resurrection, bodily resurrection, is the death-conquering life of Christ, which he has even now in bodily resurrection from the dead. But we are already raised, unless you want to argue with Colossians 3.1 and Romans 6.4 and Colossians 2.12. We are already raised together with him, and we grasp this, understand this in some measure, by what we called at the beginning of this year Operation Epsilon, which simply means seeing in the Christ event which is past when he said to Telestai, the Christ event, the crucified Christ and raised Christ. Seeing what happened there to be all dying and all made alive and in which all things were made new. In one sense, it is, in fact, finished. If you see through Operation Epsilon lenses. But we also anticipate the manifestation or the visible display of this eschatological reality which will be to every eye according to Revelation 1-7 every eye will see him in the bodily resurrection of all the dead when all will be made alive with immortal and incorruptible human bodies that's what 1 Corinthians 15-53 calls them they're like the body of Jesus which is somadoxa a body of glory Philippians 3-20 the body is glorious 1 Corinthians 15, 44, the body is spiritual, meaning that it's actuated and permeated by the Spirit of God. Now, in the same verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, where it says that since one died, then all died, here's where the love of Christ comes in. 
In the same verse, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul said, I have determined this. He came to a settled conclusion and persuasion. And he makes it very emphatic in Romans 14, 14. The one doing the persuading of him is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I have come to determine that if one died for all, then all died. Then you know what he said? Because of this, the love of Christ controls me. And that means the love of Christ for all human beings. As well as each human being. If any person, each, is in Christ, there's a new creation. And that, he indicated by that, that all are in Christ. He goes on to explain that, because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It gives new meaning to that little overused phrase, each and every. Like a teacher that comes in and says, unless somebody cops to what was done this morning, which later is found out to be done by Alan Knapp, Each and every one of you will be punished. That's a high incentive to admit your guilt. So I take that word each and every, which was an evil to me when I think think of those memories. And he turned it into a supreme good. Each and every one of us, Christ died for each and every one of us. So. In the same verse where it says, since one died, then all died, Paul says that because he himself judged this to be so, and it came to him as an insight, the result was that the love of Christ began to master him, overwhelm him, and be the prime motivation of his life. If all died when Christ died, then Paul now sees all having died with Christ and each having died with Christ. And if you're thinking of a specific person, yes, even her. If you're thinking of a specific person, yes, even him. So he, Paul, once knew Christ after the flesh He saw him as another Adamic person, a prophet, a false prophet, a cult leader. He knew him after the flesh. Now he knows him that way no more. You know what he knows him now as? The sir, single inclusive representative of all humankind. That's not knowing Christ after the flesh anymore. If you know Jesus Christ just after the gospels, you still kind of know him only after the flesh. It's only when you read the epistles and understand that he's the single inclusive representative of all humankind, both in his death and resurrection, that you know him no more like that. And that's a transformation of our thinking. So moreover, he now no longer sees anyone after the flesh. Second Corinthians 5.16. Because all are in Christ. All are created in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10. For if any person. Notice that. If any person is in Christ. And all are in him. Because Christ represents and includes all of humanity. All are in him having died with him then all are a new creation. So we must always remember that Christ who died for all died also for each. What has brought this new creation about is the love of Christ. Romans 8.35, there we are. And or the love of God in Christ Jesus, as it's called, In Romans 8.39, which will be the last phrase that we will examine in Romans the epistle. Brian, I said that almost like Thomas Brown. We will examine in Romans the epistle. The bishop 
It's coming. Those who have not seen the series on one of those Netflix or one of those. Lark Rising to Candleford, Thomas Brown. It's, he patterned after Brian Messick, our pastor, Brian Messick. Um, what has brought about this new creation is the love of Christ and or the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.39, both being realities from which no human being nor any created being or thing can ever be separated. The love of Christ is not known through common or by scientific perception, but by knowledge surpassing insight, granted by God through the Holy Spirit, who actually pours out that love in our hearts. We don't really get it until it's poured out in our hearts, until we're controlled by it. Then we get it. It's like we find ourselves seeing people in Christ rather than in Adam and in their faults and flaws. A person with such insight knows all human beings. Fight me if you want, but you haven't had this insight yet if you're fighting. The one with such insight knows all human beings and each human being. Not after the flesh, not after their ontology in Adam, but in Christ, having been reconciled to God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.19. To me, it's perfectly simple that if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that the world is reconciled to God. Examine for yourself, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Examine it for yourself and don't receive the grace of God in vain by not getting the point in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Once again, in that masterpiece of Christian eschatology called The Coming of God, Jürgen Moltmann quoted Christoph Blumhardt. I'm almost sad I said to you, you can Google him because all they do is emphasize his support the support of the bloom hearts of something called Christian socialism, which isn't the point. His theology is worth noting, however. He wrote of Christoph Blumhardt, who according to Moltmann strenuously resisted the compulsion towards symmetry, a, a symmetry that was in the Calvinistic doctrine, very popular, that if if there is going to be eternal bliss, then there must be eternal torment, and it must be a symmetry. If there's some elected to eternal life, there must be a symmetry, some elected to damnation. Symmet- they insisted on symmetry, and so their, their theology had to be aesthetic instead of divine. And so Blumhart strenuously resisted the compulsion towards symmetry by those who held the doctrine of a double predestination, some damned, some Saved. And this is what Bloomhart wrote. And I know some of you aren't ready to hear this yet. You're not ready to hear this yet. Because when I first read it seven or eight years ago, I shelved it. But this is what Bloomhart wrote. He said, they say, if there is no everlasting torment, then there is no everlasting bliss either. And if good and evil could ever be put on a par with each other, As if, rather, he says, as if good and evil could ever be put on a par with each other. Just because good is eternal, wretchedness can never be eternal. Because salvation is God's, everything that is not salvation comes to an end. Now, you accept that probably. But, you know, speaking of the practical consequences of this, this is exactly what Paul said. The practical consequences of I see different I see people as they really are. Once when I first was a Christian, I saw people as trees walking. Now I see all people clearly. Why? Because they're all in Christ, clearly. So there's a lot of people in the world that don't have mud in their eye yet. And when Jesus spit and made mud, put mud in the eye, he could see all men clearly. Because men are made of mud, but when it hits the water of the word, men are redeemed in Christ. And now you see all. So I like Plato's story about 
a land of shadows, a myth where people lived in a land where all they could see were shadows, no substance, no people, no forms. Somebody escaped from the land of shadows and saw a reality with colors and world and daybreak colors and nighttime and daytime and people and three dimensions and loving people. And he came back and told the people living in the shadows, there's something much, much, much greater than this. And they said, well, we don't believe you. Get used to that experience. So Plato did have something to say. I, by the way, I like the smell of Play-Doh. Oh, that's a different play. Never mind. Um, that's Play-Doh. I'm sorry. I just. But he went on to write this. The practical. This is this is what you might not like or might not adhere to. Bloomhart Christoph wrote this. He said, "My father once wrote to me that I should make it a rule for myself at all times to view everyone as a believer." Never to doubt it, and never to talk to a person in any other way. This found an echo, he says, in my own soul. If a Mohammedan comes, we would call a Muslim today, I call him a believer. I never accept that anyone is an unbeliever. Every human being believes because God believes. Now, this may sound too far-fetched at first, but in reality, it agrees with the faithfulness of the Son of God in Galatians 2.20, in which everyone lives. If we are in the one who was faithful, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, we are all believers, whether we believe it or not. And this sees eye to eye with 2 Corinthians 5.17, seeing every person as a new creation in Christ. All created things or beings, however warped or distorted by evil, will be transformed to their original, pristine, created good. But that's not all. It's not just back to the garden like the hippies were thinking of in Woodstock. It's transfigured into a far better state than the pristine state of creation. And that never would have happened if God had just allowed a world where no evil ever would have come in. But because he allowed a world in which evil was permitted and transformed into a supreme good by the cross of Jesus Christ. And yes, he could have redeemed us some other way. But he redeemed us by the cross of Christ to take us into a participation with his own divine nature, which is infinitely beyond anything we could ever ask or think or imagine. And no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, nor ever anyone ever imagined. The thing that God has, the things that God has prepared for those who love him because he did decree a world in which evils would be permitted. You know, the danger of this doctrine takes away every single excuse for you and me to complain. That's the danger of it. Because it's a warped and distorted generation. That complains, according to Philippians 2.14. We're supposed to stand out in that generation against that kind of attitude that lacks the understanding and the insight. All created things, however warped or distorted by evil, will be transformed into a state that is far better than the pristine or original state of creation. They will be a new creation transformed by the law of the cross By being comprised of the crucified and risen Christ. By that law, which we call the law of the cross, created beings participate with God's uncreated being or his love, his light in his life, his divine nature. Doesn't it say in 2 Peter 1, 4, or does it not, or does it say that according to exceeding great and precious promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. And that's why God became a partaker of the human nature and entered into the desperate plight of a human sinful creation. 
to redeem us. And so, by that law, by that justice, by that mystery, by that love, non-created being, evil, is brought into being as a supreme good. As the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Christ come together in Romans 1.17, so now the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ Jesus come together in Romans 8.35 to 39, which is our final increment of exposition of Romans. Both God's faithfulness in Christ and Christ's faithfulness, as well as Christ's love and God's love in Christ Jesus all become the single root of divine promity by which God has shown himself to be all for all of his creation. Again, this is where we're going. There are other ways by which God could have redeemed a fallen creation and fallen humanity, but only by the cross could God reveal to the extent of infinity his nature and essence of love and benevolence. Only by the cross, which required that God become a human being and participate in humanity's desperate plight and even be made a curse and made sin and endure pain that's unspeakable, unthinkable, and horrific, could the human race participate along with all created being in the uncreated being of God, a created participation in uncreated goodness, love, light, unspeakable. God could have chosen many ways, other ways to do away with evil, which he permitted. But by the cross, he has transformed evil into the whole Christ, head and body, and liberated all of humanity and all of creation and all of its times to be created partakers of the uncreated divine nature, Second Peter 1, 4, by summing up all things in all times in Christ, his crucified, risen, and glorified son. So you say, what about principalities and powers? And I was warned once. Be careful about being bizarre. But I have to say this, that Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, which is his body currently, presently, is also the head of all things in Ephesians 1.22. And he is the head of principalities and powers in Colossians 2.10, which means that the evil principalities and powers will not only be restored to their original pristine glory by which they sang and glorified and praised God, but they will be transfigured into a far more infinitely glorious creaturehood by being brought together under the headship of Christ and therefore be part of the body of which Christ is the head. No, that's just us. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He has made Christ the head over all things to be currently, presently, proleptically the head of the church. But you ain't everything. We're not everything. The church isn't everything. The Roman Catholic Church sure isn't everything. And to be saved isn't to be in the church. To be saved is to be in Christ and all will be in Christ. So then, Romans 8, consequently, look at Romans 8, 35. Who or what? <laughs> See, I did all that to lead up to this. Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? <laughs> Te sagapes tu Christu. Te sagapes tu Christu. It's a phrase that appears elsewhere, and I'm going to close with this. Even besides 2 Corinthians five fourteen, there's another place where tes agapes tu Christu, the the love of Christ is sort of like the faithfulness of Christ because it's both his love for us and our love for him returned by a transformation wrought in us. The phrase comes to view in Ephesians 3.19 in the apostolic prayer of Paul who prays what? That all the saints, all the saints be enabled to grasp the dimensions and to come to know the love of Christ that surpasses all the standard and normal ways of human knowing. 
called epistemology, Ephesians 3.18 to 19. That very grasp of the love of Christ that passes knowledge requires the strength of the spirit in our inmost being, says Ephesians 3.16. Because you don't even, first he says that you would receive strength by the Holy Spirit in your inmost being and then to grasp together with all saints what is the height, the depth, the breadth and the width of the love of Christ, and every one of those dimensions, height, depth, breadth, and width, has infinite, limitless direction. So who can separate you from the limitless love of Christ? You can't go too high to get over it. You can't, I can't get over it. You can't go so low as to get under it, underneath of the everlasting arms, and even if we fall, we're caught. I can't get around it by going too far left. I can't go around it by going too far right. God loves even people who go too far left and too far right. So, we pray for our president. We pray for our Congress. We pray for our leaders. We pray for all men. We pray for all human beings. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So what isn't good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior? Conspiracies against a president or a leader. Slanders against a president or a leader. Irrational, vicious, evil hatred against a leader of the people or leaders of the people. Yes, I've called Congress clowns. I didn't mean, I meant it. I rebound, I'm back on track. But... We're, we, to, we are to pray. I have never seen as much irrational hatred directed toward a leader of our nation in my life, in my lifetime, or even read about it in history like it's going on now. And whatever your politics, evil, irrational hatred comes from the one who is stripped of his power, and his name is the devil. So then, we pray for our president. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those in power, but we also pray for all of humankind. And this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior. So to hate is to reveal that you have not grasped the love of Christ. Again, in Ephesians three eighteen and 19, Paul refers to the dimensions of that love as breadth, height, length, width, Dimensions that are limitless in every direction. So who can separate us, and us means all of humanity, from the love of Christ, which is limitless in all its directions? The answer demanded, and there's no other, is no one and nothing. The objector might say, and this is where we're going next, and maybe even next Sunday, maybe even this Wednesday. The objector, he's always chiming in. And every time I preached a message, I can't remember too many times where an objector didn't come into my brain and fight the message I just preached. You, I, every message I've ever fought for, I haven't only fought for on the front end to study to get it, but fought for even harder on the back end when the objector, the accuser, comes to try to take it apart. Never has there been a time when that battle isn't fought after a message. It is assuaged many times by people who come in love to communicate with the teacher. And sometimes it's even his, he's even detached from his ability to accuse by that. And I've seen that happen many times. But the objector will say, and this objector against Paul, will object and say that tribulation might do so. Trouble is a sign that one is not loved by God or has stopped being loved by him. Not only our affliction, now I hate to warn you about this, but you know it already. Not only our affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness. And for those of you who watch too much TV, we might be naked, but we're not afraid. Danger and the sword are not able to separate us from the love of Christ. In other words, none of these things are proofs of God's disfavor. Never are they proofs of God's. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. It's inevitable. So, in the very verse 
all we, like sheep, are led to the slaughter all day long. That means that God's people in this agona, in the clashing of the ages, are not spared from afflictions, cancer, multitudes of diseases that are physically fatal. We're not spared from hard times, deprivation, even depredation. Millions of saints, godly people, have died by the sword, a metaphor for war and violence. Thousands, even now while I speak, are being economically ruined and killed in persecutions and their churches plowed over by the Chinese government and other places. Some of this persecution, of course, is state-sponsored. Countless godly people filled with the spirit suffer with cancer or heart disease or COPD. Many die in accidents or disasters and historical catastrophes. Saints, godly people who live lives of faith, hope, and love, suffer with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, depression, bipolar disorder. They are in prisons and psych wards, in old persons' homes. They're in gulags and concentration camps. They are victims of atrocities and ethnic cleansing, rape and murder. But listen to this. None of these things has any power whatsoever to pull apart what God has joined to himself in Christ. In fact, even death, yeah, even death has been defeated. And the victory over death given to us by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who has the leverage over death and uses it to make people fear And so they don't do anything in life because they fear death. He's been stripped and destroyed. The devil has been destroyed because he has no real existence of his own. And he will be transformed into the supreme good by becoming one with the whole Christ. Tough. Is that a tough one? Not tough for me. Even death has been defeated and the victory over death given to us by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in all these things, we are more than conquerors because it's through him who loved us and more than conquered death, he transformed it into the ultimate good. That's just one example. That's enough for today. Amen.